Hey friends, welcome back to the podcast. I'm Alan, your podcast host. Friends, I don't know if you know this, but we are not just a podcast. Stay Forth Designs exist to help leaders get healthy and reach sustainable impact. You don't have to burn out, flame out, or have a moral failure to continue to lead as God has designed you to lead. You'll hear this so many times here on this podcast, who you are matters more than what you do. If you're a leader who abides well, who lives well, but maybe never has the impact to somebody else you compare yourself to, not only is that okay, but that may be what God has designed you for. We don't want to get in the comparison trap that leads us toward pushing hard, driving at all costs, succeeding and white knuckling both our faith and our leadership friends. We have to figure out how God has designed us to live and lead uniquely out of our own unique design. We're going to continue to talk about themes here on this podcast that are at the intersection of the spiritual and the practical, practical ways to help you live and lead as God has designed you. We've got two free opportunities for you to grow in your leadership. The first is called Tuesday Tune-Up. Every single Tuesday, we send tips that in five minutes or less you can implement into your life straight into your inbox And we want to give you those practical tips. The Tuesday tune-up, just a little tune-up each week can go a whole long way if you continue to apply that to your leadership. You can go to TuesdayTuneUp.com. You can also find that in the show notes to sign up to get that free in your inbox. The second free opportunity is the Right Setup community. We have an incredible group of leaders having some amazing conversations. We're talking about the books that you're reading, the podcasts that you're learning from, One thing that's changing you this week, something you've had an opportunity to do that stretched you. What about experiences that are shaping you? Um, What are leaders struggling with right now? What are leaders learning from? Who are leaders learning from? Those kind of conversations are breaking out over on the right side of community. It's safe, it's protected, and it is free over on Facebook. Go ahead and like Stay Forth Designs and apply to be in the free right side of community friends. We want to join you there. We want to go deeper from these podcast conversations and we let you behind the curtain of things we're processing as a Stay Forth team and things you should be processing too if you're going to live and lead as God has designed you. Welcome back to the podcast and enjoy this episode. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. Yeah, thanks for having me, Alan. You sit at some interesting intersections in your life. You've done a lot of things. You currently do a lot of things. Talk about some of the things that you've done um, in your life and in your leadership and how they braid together. Yeah, yeah. So I did not grow up in the church. So uh, my growing up, my God was sports and my dad was a coach and he was the city recreation director in this uh, little town in Ohio called Athens, Athens, Ohio home of Ohio University Bobcats, a shout out there. Uh, Also the home of Joe Burrow, who went to my high school, who is the quarterback for the Cincinnati Bengals. So anyhow, (laughs) if he happens to be listening, give him a little shout out there. But I I grew up uh, as an athlete, did not grow up in the church, went to college as a college basketball player. Uh, Things didn't work out very well. I had kind of a crisis, became a Christian uh, in college and immediately kind of transferred a lot of these skills that I had developed as an athlete into my Christian walk realized a lot of the discipline and things like that were, were applicable. So I had a career in sports information. I worked at the University of Florida. I managed a national sports publishing company uh, for a while. Then I en- ended up uh, transitioning into um, uh, Christian higher education. So I got somewhat of a uh, background in public relations, sports information, 
Uh, I was the PR person at Asbury Seminary, and then I came to Indiana Wesleyan University as their uh, assistant vice president for marketing. And then for the last 14 years, I've been teaching college students as a faculty member. So I have an undergrad in communication, public relations, I have a master's degree in uh, philosophy, theology, and also a PhD in that area. Man, doing a lot. How do those all braid together? You know, part of what we do at Indiana Wesleyan uh, University is talk about life calling as opposed to just vocation. So trying to kind of figure out what is God calling us to do. And of course, that could be translated into lots of different fields. And I found that to be true for me. And so for me, as I've reflected upon it, I really think God has called me to be a persuasive communicator. And I've done that in a lot of different capacities uh, as a PR person as also, and also as an author as a Christian apologist, and also as a professor. So that's kind of the calling I think I have. Yeah, mm. We're going to talk a lot about culture today. There's a ton to talk about. Mm-hmm. But first of all, um, how are your college students processing so much of the polarization and division that's unfolding right now? Yeah, you know, it's going to be an interesting year, I think. I mean, we're just starting this week. Our, our first-year students are on campus. And I did a little training for our uh, uh, student leaders uh, a couple of days ago. It's hard. I mean, it's really hard for all of us. A lot of them, I think it's just, um, they're, you know, they're in, it's either fight or flight, right? <laughs> I'm either going to engage this like really hard uh, to use the metaphor in the book that we're going to talk about. I'm going to turn up the bass like really loud and try to drown out whatever you have to say, or I'm just going to shut up or run away. And I'm just going to engage with people that agree with me. And it's really hard to find that space where, you know, we can maintain our convictions, which in the metaphor we'll talk about, that's the base. Uh, while also turning up the trouble and having compassion and finding the humanity in the other person and trying to find the the imago day in that person and maybe the insight or the sacredness that they're rallying around. Mm-hmm. So it's hard. I mean, it, it, but it does take, uh, I think, a lot of practice because I don't think we're very good at it by nature. At yeah. least I know I'm not. <laughs> Fascinating um, cross-section of students and different generations right now. Uh, reacting and responding differently. All right, your book, All About the Bass, which I can't stop hearing in my head, <laughs> searching for trouble in the midst of a pounding culture war. Amazing yeah. title, by the way. Amazing title. Yeah. What do you mean by bass and trouble here? Yeah, yeah. Well, if you don't mind, I'll give you a little background on where this came from. I mean, I was driving down the road one day and I was heading to Iowa. I, I live in Fort Wayne. I know you're from the area. Or you, you spent your college also years. Also known as Taylor. Fort Fun. Yep. Fort Fun, yes. We have lots of fun up there. Um, and I was trying to think through a talk I was going to give at the first day of Courageous Conversations at Indiana Wesley on Valentine's Day, 2017. And it just kind of struck me, this all about the base, searching for trouble, um, because it it really is such a vivid metaphor for where we are as a divided culture. But um yeah, this book is largely about intuitions. It's, mm-hmm. it's about paying attention to the intuitions in our own lives, but also in other people, uh, intuitions and emotions. Um, we'll get into this more uh, here in a minute. I can explain a bit more. But, you know, we are rational beings, but we're also emotive beings and intuitive beings. And we live most of the time at the in- intuitive level. And so when you think about intuitions, we've got compassion intuitions, which are kind of the treble. And then we also have these conviction, kind of righteous conviction intuitions, which are the base. And in the culture war, it seems that the the base is really, really high, where we're really focused on our own uh, rights and our own group's purposes and, uh, and so forth, and our own sense of authority and what we find to be sacred, but oftentimes at the expense of the other person's intuitions. And so this book is about, you know, how can we turn up our compassion 
uh, and pay attention to the other person's intuitions without losing our moorings, right? Our mm. biblical convictions. So that's that's the audio equalizer metaphor there. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, man. So much. Um, so let's talk about tribalism right now. Yeah. Like yeah. how is tribalism impacting our culture in this thumping base? Yeah. Yeah. So one of the main um influences for this book, a guy by the name of Jonathan Haidt. I don't know if you've read any Jonathan Haidt or not. I haven't. He is a uh, social psychologist at New York University, and he wrote a book called The Righteous Mind. And it's really all about the relationship between these two different systems in the brain, Uh, the one being the strategic reasoning, and this is logic and argument and so forth. And this is uh, one system. And the other system, those are intuitive emotive system. And uh, we really live at that, as I said before, kind of this intuitive emotive level most of the time. And that's the automatic system. So that's our gut reaction to situations, right? And so what happens, he says, is that we react to a situation. He calls this your elephant. This is one of the metaphors in the book. Your elephant reacts and begins leaning either away from a person uh, or toward that person. And it's it's an automatic response and then gets the rider strategic reasoning involved not to think through the problem in a rational way, but rather to defend the move of the elephant. Mm. Okay, so the rider is kind of functioning as a defense attorney, as a PR practitioner, and and so forth. And so this is part of what's happening in our brain. We have kind of the split brain, and they can operate uh, together, but sometimes operate in in crossways. Another principle he talks about in the book is that we are, um, basically, we're very moral uh, creatures, and morality binds us into teams, and then blinds us to the perspective of other teams. Right. So yeah. he talks about being homo duplex, that we are fundamentally selfish, but we do have the capacity to elevate and transcend our own selfish interests for the sake of our team and our tribe. But when that happens, we get we get blinded to the insights of the other other side. So we get into this tribal mindset. We're just not constitutionally capable of really seeing the other perspective. Well, so he says we need to step out of that tribalism, at least occasionally. Right to try to, as objectively as possible, see the sacred insights on both sides before we, we move back into our tribe. Because tribalism is is basically allows us to survive because yeah. we find community, correct? Yes, yes, that's right, yeah. yeah. So, so we so go we, into that survive mm-hmm. mode instead of this, you know, thrive, empathetic, compassion mode that you're inviting us back into? That's, that's, that's exactly right. So, I mean, this is how we're wired. This is how we're all wired, right? And uh, I mean, Haidt himself is an atheist. He understands all of this in terms of naturalistic evolution. And we don't have to get into theistic evolution and all that in order to have this conversation. Um, But there's no doubt, no matter what your perspective is on that, that survival is a big part of how we're wired, right? And so we do have this this natural impulse to survive. We gravitate from, uh, I mean, studies have shown at a very early age, we gravitate toward those who are like us. Um, So it's not just because we're, you know, racists and other people aren't racist. I mean, this is how we are wired. And so it's important to recognize that. So part of what we talk about in the in the book here is, you know, we're not going to get rid of tribalism because this is how we are wired. We need tribes. I mean, there's positive things that happen when we galvanize with a certain group and we can accomplish great goods uh, in contributing to society. But there are some ways I think we can, some some strategies and practices we can engage in that can help us begin to expand the tribe. Mm-hmm. So we begin to see someone who is other as one of us. And so I think there's some strategies that are interesting here. Yeah, we'll talk about some of those. Um, in the book, you have 10, these 10 action steps yeah. um, to turn up our empathetic compassion. Can you highlight one or two of them that you think are especially crucial right now? Yeah, I mean, you know, one that I'm gonna be speaking on in chapel in a couple of weeks is uh, disgust. 
I mean, disgust just seems to be so rampant right now. John Gottman is a uh, marriage stability expert, and he taught at the University of Washington for many years, and he's a best-selling author. You've probably heard of him. Many of your listeners probably have as well. And he talks about, um, well, he brings couples, married couples that are struggling in their marriage onto campus into what he calls the love lab for a weekend. It sounds super creepy. <laughs> he's yeah, got cameras in there, right? And uh, it's not to, you know, be Big Brother and Snoop and, and all that, but rather to pay attention to how they engage one another in conversation. And what he has found is uh, he can predict with more than 90%, 90% accuracy within five minutes whether they're going to stay together over the long haul. And he, wow. and he tracks them, right? Wow. And so, and he says it's not if they're fighting, it's not if there's anger, it's if there's contempt. So if there's disgust. For the other person, so um, he 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 lists like seven expressions, deadly expressions of disgust, things like sarcasm and snark. That would be one. Another would be cynicism. Another is name calling, eye rolling, sneering, mockery, hostile humor. So these are the sorts of things that are present when there's contempt between a married couple. And so, of course, this isn't uh, only for married couples. This is true in all of our relationships. And so, if when, when we disagree with someone across the aisle. You know, if, if these are the sorts of things that are manifesting, um, you know, if we're rolling our eyes, if we have hostile humor, if we're being constantly snarky and so forth, that's problematic because it's much deeper. Hyde talks about uh, contempt and disgust being like an indelible ink. It's seeing the other person as filthy, disgusting, right? We have mm -hmm. nothing to do with them. So if we pay attention to that sort of language uh, on social media, it's everywhere. Right. So it's not just that we disagree with the other side. They're disgusting. They're evil. They're demonic. Uh, we dehumanize them. So when that happens, you know, they're not one of us. They're a long way from one of us and they're one of them. And it's very difficult to, to empathize across the divide when that when we get to that stage. So trying to reverse that. Right. So trying to find commonality intersection points. Where do I have common tribal intersection points with that person is a technique to try to begin to see that person as, as one of us rather than one of them. And it could be as simple as, hey, we root for the same sports team. We like the same music. You know, I'm a second son as well. But entering into these relationships with that sort of posture where we're trying to find that, that common ground, it does something actually not only in our spirit, it does something biologically. It does something in the brain uh, because there's a study done at Harvard that, uh, that showed when we see somebody as us, we actually recruit the same neurons in the brain that we use when we think about ourselves. Mm. But when we see them as one of them, it's a different set of neurons that are being recruited. So there's an actual biological basis for this. So, it, But it does take intentionality, I think. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Talk about cynicism a little bit more. Why is cynicism exploding today? And how do we fight cynicism? Yeah, cynicism. Um, I'm not an expert <laughs> on it. I mean, there's just, certainly just asking for your opinion. Yeah, not your research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, why are we so so cynical? I mean, um, I think maybe part of it is the role, the roles that we choose to play in our public discourse. I read a book recently uh, called Beyond Civility by two uh, communication scholars, and they talked about envisioning our public square as like a play. And we all take on different roles. And they actually listed a number, like seven different roles. And one, I think, was an inquisitor. Another is a discussant. Another is a witness. Another is a culture warrior. Another is a critic. And another is a troll, <laughs> right? So mm -hmm. depending on what sort of posture or what mask we put on when we enter in, 
um, you know, we're going to have a different uh, type of engagement with that person we disagree with. So if you're a discussant, I want to hear your story. If, if I'm a witness, I'm going to tell you my story. We're going to be doing it. But if I'm a critic, I, my job is to be cynical. My job is to constantly be questioning my job. And I think we have way too many critics, culture warriors and trolls operating. And I'm not saying there isn't a place, no, probably no place for mm-hmm. trolls. But if, from a Christian perspective, yeah, there's certainly a place for a, being a critic and to be prophetic and to probably be a warrior at times. But but we need some of these other roles, I think, people participating in these roles. And probably all of us need to be in those roles from time to time. Yeah, and I wonder what the link is between that and both a, a curiosity and a humility. Yes. It seems to be the opposite of cynicism. Yes, that's that's good. Um, you know, I think I do in the, in uh, one of my chapters, I do talk about the need to cultivate humility. It's one of the treble tactics. Um, I know when I was a young Christian, as I said, when I was giving you my bio at the beginning, I didn't grow up in the, the church, I became a Christian in college for whatever reason. I mean, it became in my mind, I had to know everything. <laughs> I mean, in order to be credible and because I was a Christian, I had to teach everyone the truth. Right. And so humility was really hard to come by. And I think maybe as a basketball player growing up, I was five foot seven. <laughs> you know, I had to you know flex my muscle. I had to probably act cocky and that sort of thing. I probably transferred over to my Christianity. So working on humility has been a lifelong project for me. But, uh, you know, I mean, one of the key themes in scripture, I, I believe, is that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble and he elevates the humble. And I think of Philippians too, with Jesus is the is the paradigmatic example of that. And so, you know, we know the one who knows it all doesn't mean we're know-it-alls. So, I mean, how the posture that we bring, I mean, humility is so contagious. I think it's attractive for people. Um, when you enter into a conversation, you say, hey, tell me your story. And, you know, what? I don't have this all figured out. Let's come side by side. And let's walk into this mm. together. There's something, I think, that can be very contagious about that. Mm. Yeah, you, you're trying to move us from hostility to hospitality yeah. in the book. Yeah. And hospitality is, I would say, one of the sacred themes uh, in my life that whether yeah. that's embodied through food, through relationship, through conversation, through this podcast, right? Of bringing right. on different voices in this. What are some practical ways that we can embrace a cultural hospitality right now? Yeah, yeah. Practical ways. I mean, certainly opening our homes has been hard during COVID, right? <laughs> you know, and being sensitive uh, to that. Um, I mean, hospitality for me is it starts on a one-on-one level, relational level. Um, let me go back a little bit into my past again, because I don't think God wastes anything. <laughs> you know, he, he brings us through all sorts of experiences. And then if we're open to it, he'll use them. One of the experiences that I lean into a lot is um, I was uh, very early in my professional career, I was in public relations and I was in sports and I was a journalist. And so I wrote a lot of feature stories. And so uh, as I think back upon that, that was just such a great experience because when you write a feature story on somebody, you go in and you, you don't go in with preconceived ideas. You go in and let them set the tone and set the pace and tell their story. And I can, I tell my students this uh, and I say, I mean, honestly, I've never met a boring person. Mm. I mean, if you really take the time to hear their story Every single person is fascinating, is interesting in, in, a, in a different way. So for me, that's, hospi- that's hospitality. That's being hospitable. I want to enter into these conversations, not by just, I'm doing a lot of talking today. Sorry about that. But when I'm having a conversation with someone normally, I'm like, you tell me your story. I want to hear your mm-hmm. story. And then I let that kind of dictate the, the flow 
of the exchange. And uh, typically they'll mirror that back to you, right? And so, I mean, if, if you're in game, I mean, for me, the end game is I want to love people well, right? Um, but if you want to earn the right to speak into that person's life and maybe share the gospel with them and so forth, and we believe that's life-giving, and that's the most important thing, ultimately, you, you do that by starting out by honoring their sacredness and honoring their story and their humanity, I think. Mm. Yeah, and we could continue to have this conversation. I'm sure we'll connect again. Yeah. Scott, what's one thing that deeply grieves you right now? I, I think I'll just go back to the disgust that I think we have. And I, I am not immune to it uh, for people on the other side of the aisle on a wide variety of, of issues. Um, you know, just not, it's, not, it's fine to disagree. I mean, we are going to disagree. I mean, we live in a pluralistic culture. I disagree. From, no, I'm just kidding. Yes. <laughs> right. We come from lots of different, we have a lot of different life experiences. I mean, uh, we're, we're going to have disagreements. That's not the, the problem, but how we adjudicate those mm-hmm. is, but when we reduce it to the point of contempt, it's very hard to get back, to get that back to a place of humanity. But um, I think in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do it. And by implementing certain humanizing spiritual practices, we can begin to you know, rewire our brain. Uh, we can begin to rewire those dispositions uh, and begin to see people through the eyes of Christ maybe a little, little bit better. Mm. Leave us with a few opportunities right yeah. now. What are a few opportunities for the people of Jesus right now in this moment? Cast some hope our direction. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, we right now, many Christians right now are mirroring the culture, or maybe in some ways we're influencing the culture because we're crusaders. We are things we care deeply about. And so there are some things that are worth crusading for. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but the way we're, we're doing it, um, I mean, the end is justifying the means. Mm-hmm. And so I think we have an opportunity to be countercultural. Um, to to learn how to practically love our neighbors in ways that are arresting, uh, mm. to 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 enter into just shocking, surprising, loving relationships that you're like, how how in the world is that is that Christian, that atheist? Why are they friends, right? Or or that uh, that pro life person and that uh, that pro choice person? How in the world do they become such good friends, right? Uh, we can do that. We can enter into those relationships. And I tell some of those stories actually in the in the book. But to me, those are so inspiring. Those are so elevating. They move me way more than just you know any sort of lecture would. <laughs> mm, that's good. Well, yeah. Dr. Scott Burson, all about the base, searching for treble in the midst of a pounding culture war. Thanks for your work, the writing, but especially as you're shaping university students to think and live differently. Scott, appreciate you. Keep doing what you're doing. Thanks, brother. Thanks for having me on.